Beshiva, from the sermon series, Matriarchs of the Messiah, spoken by Pastor Doug Cho. Uh, who here has made a New Year's resolution, whether this year or in the past? Resolutions, right? Um, can you just give me one? No, 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 not her. Anyone but her. But she has one. She has one, but not her. Anyone? Just call it out. Lose weight. Read a book. Anyone else? Two more? Work out more. Anyone else? Eat healthy. A lot of diet ones. All right? Everyone wants to. Um, working out. Common resolution. Diet. Read more. Spend time. Save money. Um, someone in the first service had like all four. Right? Uh, these are all resolutions that people usually make and most of the time are often broken. Right? We see that uh, if you frequent the gym a lot, right, what happens? Come January, there's an influx of people and a dire need for treadmills because everyone's on the treadmill. But then February comes along and then those people disappear because the resolution does not last. And it's safe to say that the majority of resolutions meet this kind of fate. They just don't last, which is ironic because the definition for a resolution is this. It's a firm decision to do or not to do something. That is what it means to resolve to do something. It means you are standing firm on a decision to do or not to do something, to resolve. Resolute. It does not change. As we've been going through this series, The Matriarchs of the Messiah, and as we close it out today, um, we have heard some very powerful sermons on the women in the genealogy of Jesus. But the thread that ties these women together is the resolve that they have for their faith and their character. The resolve that they show through their faith in their character. They are true to their word, wholeheartedly, sticking to what they believe is faithful and righteous until the very end. Think about it, Ruth, right? I will not leave you. God is my witness. I will not leave you. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Mary, when the angel comes and says, highly favored are you, and she's troubled, on the inside, but she, the angel says, don't worry. And she accepts this burden to give birth to the Messiah. Tamar and Rahab, the things that they had to go through in their lives and all that went through with them. We see them. We see their resolve to faithfulness, the resolve for character, and then they are honored as being part of the lineage. That is a great honor to be part of this lineage that brings about the King of Kings, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. What a privilege it is. God sees these women. He honors these women. He names these women. That is something that is very noteworthy. These are great godly women. And they're so admirable that we find one more today, Bathsheba. Now, if you're familiar with the story, you might be like, oh, 
really Bathsheba, we'll, we'll talk about that. Uh, but this is what is written in Matthew 6, uh, Matthew 1, 6. David fathered Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah, that is Bathsheba. Now, a lot is not directly mentioned about her, which is a little troublesome, right? And it puts us on the hunt for two things, two things. The first is context. Scripture is all about context. So we're going to be looking through cultural context, biblical context within the Bible. And the second is obviously evidence. Things from other parts of scripture that will help shed light on the story that we're reading here today. Right? So we're going to hunt through that. And as we go through scripture, as we go through this story today, we're going to stop and take moments to clarify what's going on. But I'm going to say here, that a poor reading of this text, a really bad reading of the story of Bathsheba and David, will tell you that she was a woman complicit in sin. That she was a woman who may have been eager for clout or foolish enough to want time with the king. I find those readings of her actually quite misogynistic and frankly very shallow. So, we're going to do our best to give her justice here. And our goal today, our one goal for today, is to look at what does it mean to have the resolve to be faithful? What does it mean to have the resolve to be faithful? Now, I'm going to be honest. This is not a very holiday sermon. Um, we are dealing with the abuse of power and assault. So if you need to take some time, you know, and leave during the service, that's fine. Won't be offended. But we will do our best without explicitly talking about anything, but we'll do our best to honor what happens here in Scripture. So in order to do that, let's pray together. And church, just pray with me in your own words too that God would be present in this place. That Father, like everything else in the universe, this service and this time would be yours. And that you would use it, Lord Father. That your word would be spoken and that your people would take it, receive it, and plant it into their hearts, God. Nothing else but you. We pray for your presence to be here, heavy in this place, that you would be with both sons and daughters and those who do not see them as such, that their eyes would be opened. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Who is Bathsheba? Who is she? So we know from scripture that the father of Bathsheba was a man named Eliam. Eliam was one of David's mighty men. Now, what's the big deal about being one of David's mighty men? The mighty men of David was a very short list, about 37 people. This list was an elite list of men, right? Not even some of the generals of David's army got onto this list. They were the top of the top. It's like the Navy SEALs of David. These men were just 
such renowned soldiers that they were put on a very specific list. So Eliam was one of these men. In fact, not only was her father Eliam one of David's mighty men, her husband Uriah was also one of David's mighty men. So she is surrounded by great men. Her father Eliam originally names her Bathshua, which means daughter of my prosperity. Daughter of my prosperity. And so it's not uncommon for the Israelites to go through name changes. as We saw in the story of Ruth, right? Naomi, she goes through a name change. As she experiences something, she changes to Mara, right? Or names are also often changed at bat mitzvahs or bar mitzvahs, right? Because the first name actually reflects the feelings that the parents have towards the child. So when Beth Shua is born... Eliam says, you are the daughter of my prosperity. He takes great pride in this girl. Prosperity has brought me this beautiful girl. And so he's greatly pleased with having her. And then her coming of age ceremony comes, right? It happens. And that name change becomes something that reflects the character of the woman, the character of the woman. And he names her Bathsheba. Bathsheba means daughter of the oath. So this oath is in reference to the, the oath between Abraham and God. Daughter of the oath. If you think about what that name means, it means that this young woman, woman at the time, right? She's about 12, but woman at the time, this young woman takes the law and the word of God very seriously. That Eliam, who is so proud of his daughter of prosperity, changes her name to daughter of the oath. That is to give you an idea of the type of woman that Bathsheba is. That is who we're dealing with in this story. Because names in the scripture are very important. And we see that Bathsheba, daughter of the oath, is more than just a pretty face. We're going to read from 2 Samuel 11. <clears throat> then it happened in the spring, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they brought destruction on the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed in Jerusalem. Pause here. David sends his general Joab and all of Israel to war, but then decides to stay behind. Right? It's a little unusual. It's actually very unusual. One, because kings usually go out to lead their army with their presence. Right? David is also a very renowned soldier. So this is very odd for him not to be in the battlefield. And what we see here in other translations, it says, David tarried. Translation, David was not feeling it. He was lazy. So he said, you go, and I will take the springtime off. Verse 2. Now at evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. David arises from a siesta, which is actually very common uh, in that region because it's hot in the afternoon, so you take a nap. He rises, takes a walk on his rooftop, 
and he sees Uriah's home, right? Uriah's rooftop, which is not unusual because Uriah is one of his renowned soldiers. So it's close to his king's house. And he sees a woman bathing. And what we know, given from Bathsheba's character, is that her bath is not just haphazardly out in the open for all to see. All right? Her bath is not just some sort of exhibition. It's that the king's home gave David a vantage point where he could see her without knowing. That makes more sense. So what does that mean? David's a creep. (laughs) David's a creep. And he ogles at her, bathing, and then he asks his servant about her. Verse 3. So David sent servants and inquired about the woman. And someone said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and had her brought. And when she came to him, he slept with her. And when she had purified herself from uncleanness, she returned to her house. But the woman conceived. So she sent word and informed David and said, I am pregnant. Stop here. King David abuses his power here. Clear abuse of power. He asks his servant, who is she? They tell her she's a married woman to someone you know very well, who's the daughter of someone you know very well. And he says to his servants, bring her to me. He has her brought into his home. He sleeps with her. Now, I've read and seeing people compare Bathsheba to Joseph, when Joseph leaves Potiphar's wife, and they drag on her, because they say, Joseph walked away. Ridiculous comparison. Very different scenario. Bathsheba is dealing with the king of her own country. She's dealing with the one who commands the generals, who command her husband who command her father, who can quite literally kill them or her on a whim. So she has little time or little choice or little room to make any decision here. David sleeps with her, and I want you to pay attention to this part right now. After he slept with her, and she had purified herself from uncleanness, she returns to her house. This is in reference to Leviticus 15, 18. If a man sleeps with a woman so that there is emission, they both bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Why is this significant? This poor woman. I mean, who knows what is going on in her mind her heart, her body. But we need to highlight two things here. Bathsheba is targeted by David's darkest moment in scripture. This is David's darkest moment in scripture. So much so that Nathan says, you have brought a sword upon your house and that sword will not leave. It will stay for generations. And it is truly a terrible and oppressive thing that has happened to her. 
But then this woman resolves to do something very simple, but so courageous and inspiring. She's so true to her name, daughter of the oath, she continues to follow Levitical law over women and the rites of purification. And please don't miss this. See, because sin is a very twisted thing. Sin is a terrible thing. And when it occurs, whether you are the perpetrator or whether you are being sinned against, there are direct consequences, yes. But it also causes shame, doubt, guilt to stir inside of people. I am tainted. I am used. I cannot recover from this. I am no longer worthy. What sin does is it plants a lie in your soul. But this woman, this Bathsheba, performing this cleansing rite, after the fact she was forced to sleep with a man who was not her husband, is profoundly in defiance of what sin could do to her. See, by law, by law, Bathsheba is the adulteress. And David is free. So think about it. What's the use of washing? By law, her husband should stone her to death because she broke her marital covenant. Why wash? Why? But by washing, she has declared her purity is determined by God and God alone. And though a man, a king, or even the world tried to steal that away from her, it could not be tainted. That when Paul writes, neither height nor death nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. That is Bathsheba. She knows that God does not condemn her, that God does not condemn you, but he longs for the restoration of his people by washing. So simple. so faithful. That is Bathsheba. Then David hears that she's conceived. And David, also in his sin, has a choice to either repent, make right, or choose another direction, which he does, unfortunately, we see here. He begins to hide in his sin. He tries to bury his sin. He calls Uriah back from the battlefield and he says, Uriah, eat, drink with me and be with your wife. Right? He tries to cover this up. But Uriah, in his own faithfulness, says, the ark of God is on the battlefield. My general is on the battlefield. My brothers are on the battlefield. How can I celebrate while they are fighting? And so David does his best. He gets him drunk because he's the king. 
But even in that, Uriah sleeps on a mat outside of his home. He sends Uriah back, and then the plot gets ever darker. Verse 14. So in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. He had written in the letter the following, Station Uriah on the front line of the fiercest battle and pull back from him so that he may be struck and killed. So it was as Joab kept watch on the city that he stationed Uriah at the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city went out and fought against Joab. And some of the people among David's servants fell. And Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent a messenger and reported to David all the events of the war. He ordered the messenger, saying, When you have finished telling all the events of the war to the king, then it shall be that if the king's wrath rises and he says to you, Why did you move against the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did the woman did not throw an upper millstone on him from wall so that he died at the best? Why did you move against the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite also died. Pause here. What Joab is doing is he's protecting the messenger. Because he's saying, when you go, not just Uriah died, other men that were precious to David died as well. So David's going to be angry. So in order to appease David's anger, make sure you end with, but Uriah's dead. And David is relieved. And he sends back a clement response. That is the heart that we see here right now. You see, David and Bathsheba, they end up foiling each other. Bathsheba in her faithfulness and David in his downward spiral into this shame and sin. Up until this point, David, the man that's known to be after God's own heart, has yet to fail. Yet to fail. He has only experienced victory and triumph in the Lord's name. But when he begins to fall in sin, and it, we could say it started with him being lazy, he falls deeper and deeper into it, hiding coveting, lying, murdering. And this tells us we must be vigilant to guard our hearts and our souls. We need to resolve to be faithful, to continue to be faithful, even when things are great. Verse 26. Now when Uriah's wife heard that her husband Uriah was dead, she mourned for her husband as she should. When the time of mourning was over, David sent servants and had her brought to his house and she became his wife. Then she bore him a son. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. Make no mistake about it. Scripture is very clear. Scripture identifies David as the one who had done evil in the sight of God. He makes no mention of Bathsheba here. This tells us God sees, God knows. God sees and God knows. See, after this, eventually, God's word is delivered to David through the prophet Nathan. And Nathan calls him out on his hypocrisy and his heart, his murder. But Nathan also identifies Bathsheba as a lamb, innocent, 
And <clears throat> I need to put an asterisk here because I'm going to assume a couple of things. I believe that Bathsheba and Nathan have a good relationship, this prophet and this woman. Why? Well, later on in scripture, they partner together to get her second son, Solomon, to become king. Right? David is, I mean, Nathan is very for Bathsheba's son to become king. There's competition. People are vying for the throne because David is about to die. But Nathan is very supportive of Solomon to become king. The other point I see is that her next son after Solomon, she names him Nathan. So my, the way I see it is, these two people have a very good relationship. Nathan, being a very righteous prophet, with this woman, Bathsheba. And that tells me what? That tells us what? I conclude she was a righteous woman. That even until the end, even after her husband is taken from her, she fulfills her duty to her people and to her God. Now, this sermon is not about sucking it up. That is not what we're saying here. This text does not tell us that. This text tells us that God sees, God knows, and God knows that you're trying. In all the small things, can you be faithful? In whatever way you can. Because sometimes the circumstances will be stacked against you. See, <sighs> resolve is a funny thing. Because it's so hard to put together. And yet it's so hard to take apart once it's there. When I think about resolve, I think about my mom. As we've been talking about matriarchs, my mom was a very interesting person. She's 73, but sometimes she gets her age confused because officially she's 71. And this is because her parents, like, they didn't care to register her on time. Right? And this is not just like a month late. They took two years to register my mom. So originally, 73, she's 71. And this kind of pattern of being overlooked was something that stayed with her as she grew up. When she finished middle school, her dad told her, hey, just work. Don't, don't go to high school. Like, it's not worth it for you. Just, just work. And so she did. She worked. But then she wanted an education so bad that after she would work, and this is my 12-year-old mom, after she worked, she would go to night school to do high school. And she finished that, and then she went to nursing school and finished a degree for nursing in Korea. That is the resolve that my mom had for her education. And it was so much so that it became a thorn in my side. 
because she wanted education so badly for me that she would constantly push me. Not just, why aren't you doing your homework? It's, why don't you have more homework? It's an honor to have homework. Like, what? You know, me not knowing where she's coming from. Like, what are you talking about? But I did not know why she wanted this for me so badly until she told me this story. It was her resolve for her child. But I saw her resolve for me in other ways, in the ways that she lived, enduring a husband that did not love her, that mistreated her. But she worked a double night shift as a nurse for 10 years as the sole income breadwinner of our household so that I could have an education. That is the power of resolve. So Church Metro, I tell you this today. If we could have the resolve to be faithful like Ruth, like Tamar, like Rahab, like Bathsheba, I tell you, our church will transform the world. Let's pray. Uh, not out loud, but in your own way. Just call out to Jesus. Call out to Jesus. And when you call out to him, I hope that within your heart you can believe that he is ready and willing to enter into the darkest depths of your soul. That if you are struggling today with guilt, with shame, with sin, Jesus is there. Jesus is with you. I think about the Christmas story and I think about the heart that God had to have to send his son because they knew we would crush him. God knew we would reject him, mistreat him, despise him, And yet he sent his son to take on our iniquity for love. So in the darkest place, you can be sure Jesus says to you, I am with you always. So Father, I want to lift up all my brothers and sisters here. 
some who may be struggling, some who may be feeling oppressed, some who have the weight on their shoulders. God, would you call them out of silence? Call them out of silence, Lord. In Jesus' name. And would your hand be upon them and begin a healing process, whatever that might look like over them, that they would have people to confide in, counselors to counsel them, people to cry with, a community to be with. But we know for sure, God, that they have a God that loves them and that he promises them that justice is coming. So Father, let your will be done. We pray against shame in the name of Jesus. And we pray for resolve, God. That in the smallest moments, Lord, that we would choose you because it's you, God. Be with my brothers and sisters as this year closes out, Lord. That we would know you in ways we thought we could never. In Jesus' name I pray.